0: The book of Daniel, chapter number 4, as we continue through our series entitled Gods at War. Where we've taken the opportunity over the last few weeks really just to look at different good things in our lives that have the potential of elevating themselves to a place of authority in our hearts and in our souls. Uh, this past week I had something interesting happen. I was uh, upstairs and, and I, I came I came downstairs uh, into our living room and the door was closed and, and there was nobody down there. Everybody was upstairs. The kids were kind of flying around. And I came downstairs and the strangest thing, I, I looked up into our, our fan, you know. We've got one of these fans up in our, up in our living room and literally there is a bird in our living room. On the fan. Just sitting there. And it started flying around the living room. And it landed on our kitchen table. And this was the. Literally. It came out of nowhere. I have no idea where it came from. I have no ideas who it is. So if you're missing a bird right now. Alright. And it looks something like the one you're seeing here. On this picture. Uh, I don't know. Some kind of parakeet or something like that. And it just. It just appeared. And I don't know if it was some type of uh, guardian angel. Or if it was just a stray parakeet. Uh, but if anybody has won a bird please don 't hesitate uh, to let me now. No, we have a small little blue one that is now available, and uh, we 're having a, a great a great time with that it 's an interesting thing with idols when we talk about these things it 's amazing because they really are good things in our lives there 's nothing intrinsically wrong with most idols you know most things uh, idols, money, possessions uh, these things that become idols in our heart aren 't intrinsically wrong; they just have a way of kind of without us even knowing it, kind of fluttering into our lives. And and then they're there, and we don't know how they got there. And and much like stray birds that come out of nowhere, idols have the potential of just kind of fluttering into our lives. They're there, and and before we even know it, they're just kind of taking up residence in our home. And uh, this morning, we are going to deal with what, in my opinion, probably is the most predominant, Of all the idols that have the potential of uh, kind of edging their way into a place of authority in our heart and soul. And that is the idol or the little g God of self. Um, As you study the word of God, there is no other thing in the scriptures that tends to elevate its authority over God's will and God's word like our own selfish desires... And our own selfish will. And I know it's kind of weird to think about it in this perspective. But the reality is this. It's very easy to make ourselves the God, little g-o-d, of our lives. And all of a sudden, before we know it, our selfish desires, our selfish ambitions, our wants begin to take authority over God's plans, over God's word, and over God's will. As we've been saying throughout this series, Ezekiel chapter number 14 verse 3 says it so eloquently. These men have set up idols in their hearts. You see, we turn something into an idol... When we seek after anything smaller than Jesus to give us what only Christ can give us. And so we've gone to the temple of pleasure and looked at some things that in a pleasurable way begin to elevate themselves to a position of authority. And it becomes things that sets the agenda for our lives. We then went to the temple of treasure and looked at how things like money and possessions before we know it, can begin to dictate the agenda of our lives. Last week, we looked at the temple of love and how even some good things, things that we love dearly, if we're not careful, we might allow them to take a place of authority in setting the agenda even over God's will for our lives. And so today, we're going to go to Daniel chapter number four, and uh, we're going to look at an individual, his name was King Nebuchadnezzar, who literally (coughs) thought he was a god in the most extreme fashion. Daniel chapter number 4 is one of the most unique chapters in the entire Bible because it is written by this King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a reputation as an evil Pagan Monarch Uh, He was the king of Babylon The most powerful city in the Ancient world Babylon is located in what Is now called Iraq And it's no coincidence That uh, uh, really King Nebuchadnezzar was the hero Of a man by the name of Saddam Hussein. How many of you are familiar With that name alright King Nebuchadnezzar was one of his heroes In fact uh, Saddam Hussein himself Said that he was the successor of Nebuchadnezzar. And the two had plenty in common. Uh, They were both extremely, extremely cruel. Uh, Their cruelty had no equal. Uh, Their power, the way they used and manipulated their power were very similar. And we come to verse number 4 here in Daniel Daniel chapter number 4. And we're going to find here where King Nebuchadnezzar really begins to speak to all of what he has. He says in verse number 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel 4 verse 4, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. And so we're going to notice here how things are really going well for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's content, he's prosperous, and in a few moments we're going to uncover just literally how prosperous This man was incredibly, incredibly wealthy. He's at the pinnacle of his success as a ruler. He's living the good life, but literally at this season, he has a nightmare. He's in his home, he's sleeping, he's resting, and he has this horrible nightmare. And in this nightmare, he has, there's this incredible tree. In fact, the dream goes on to say that this tree that flourished with fruit could be seen in every nation around the world. It's abundant with fruit. But in verse number 13 here of chapter number 4, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement. And let me get there here. Notice verse number 13. He says, I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Thus, hew, or cut down the tree. And so here is Nebuchadnezzar. He's having this dream of this tree that's flourishing. And all of a sudden, in his nightmare, in his dream, in this vision, one comes down from heaven and says, Hey, I'm going to cut this tree down. So this dream really gets Nebuchadnezzar's attention and he he sends for his magicians. He sends for the wise men to come and interpret this dream here for him. And, And as you can imagine, they don't have a clue of what it means. And so they call in Daniel and at this time Daniel is now the chief. Of all of his wise men. We've taught lessons on the life of Daniel before. But Daniel was a God-fearing man. Who became a slave in Babylon. And because of his love for God. Was elevated through the political ranks in Babylon. To become literally the second in command. And when Daniel hears the dream. The king can see that he is disturbed. But Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the truth. And here's what Daniel says in verse number 20. He says, The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, upon those branches, the fowls of the heaven, and their habitation. Notice verse 22. It is thou. And so Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, that tree, that vision, that represents you. You are that tree that is prosperous. You are that tree that has all this fruit. And he says, you're going to get cut down. And so Daniel tells the king in verse 25, he begins to communicate here to him. And he says, he says they shall drive thee from men... And thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whosoever he will. And so Daniel declares for this mighty, prosperous, wealthy king. He says, basically, Nebuchadnezzar, the time is going to come where your tree is going to get cut down and he says you are going to live like a beast literally you are going to live like an animal god is going to give this king who thinks he's a god a reality check he's going to make it clear that he is the only true god this is where we pick up our text Because at the end of all this, we're going to see a declaration made by this King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who thought he was almighty, who thought he was all this. And we're going to see what he has to say. I hope uh, inside your service program, there's an outline that you can use to follow along through the Bible study. I hope you'll pull it out at this time. If you've got a pen, I'd encourage you to kind of take notes as we move through here our lesson this morning. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand out of respect for God's word as we read verse number 37 together of Daniel chapter number 4 and hear what this king has to say. The Bible says in Daniel chapter number 4 verse 37, Now I, this is after all this has taken place, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol or honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase finally nebuchadnezzar comes to a place where he recognizes he's not god he was wealthy he was pro- uh, he was prosperous he had leadership he had he had authority but he was no god And he had no right elevating himself to a position of authority in his own life and in the life of those around him. This morning I want to speak on the subject of elevating self to a position of final authority in our lives over God and his revealed word. And like I said just a moment ago, I believe for most individuals, it is the God of self that reigns most supreme. We don't really care necessarily what God has to say. We want to know what we feel like doing. doesn't matter what God's will is. What, what do I want to do? And we elevate self above all else. And we're going to look at how God works with that. How God deals with that. And how do we identify whether the God of self is elevating itself in our own heart, in our, in our own soul. We're going to have a word of prayer. We'll show a quick video and then we'll dive into our text here today. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for those of us who so subtly allow the little G God of self to grow in authority in our heart and soul. Lord, I pray that we would be very careful to allow you to reign supreme rather than letting our own selfish desires, our own selfish wants... Our own selfish dreams to dictate our lives over your will and over your word. Lord, I pray that you would remain on the throne of our hearts. Lord, I pray that self would not get to a place where it gets to reign above all else. Lord, help us to identify whether or not this might be something some of us in this room are struggling with. And Lord, reveal it to our hearts as only you can in Jesus name amen and you may be seated our theme for the morning here today is simply this i think they'll throw it on the screens and and that is this living for the savior is way more fulfilling than living for self. Now the world's going to try to tell you, hey, if you live out your own dreams, if you live out your own desires, if it feels good, just do it. That that is what's going to bring satisfaction. That is what is going to bring fulfillment. But I want to say this, that is simply the proverbial carrot being dangled in front of that proverbial cart horse, as you might call it. The reality is that living for self, allowing your selfish ambitions, your selfish desires to lead you into what you will do will not bring fulfillment and will not bring ultimate satisfaction. In fact, there are many different studies that secular sociologists have done that literally prove this statement to be true. There are many people who have lived their lives trying to find fulfillment, trying to find satisfaction in all these things and all those things. And literally, secular sociologists will tell you that the studies prove that people don't know what they want. We can show you study after study after study that people think they know what's going to make them happy. They think they know what's going to satisfy them. They think they know what's going to bring them fulfillment. But as the studies have shown, secular studies, at the end of it all, they, they really don't. They only think they do. Because when they get what they think they wanted, the studies have inequivocally proven that it does not satisfy. You see, the reality is this, that living for the Savior, allowing God to To have a place of ultimate authority in our hearts and lives. Can I say this? It's not just best for God. It really is best for you. It's the only way to find satisfaction. It's the only way to find ultimate fulfillment. is by allowing God, allowing his authority and his word to reign supreme on your heart. This morning, we're going to examine three questions as we look at King Nebuchadnezzar's life that I hope will help us to determine if we are sitting on the throne of our own hearts. And and I hope we'll be honest with ourselves. I hope that you'll be honest with yourself. And I pray that you'll allow the Word of God really to search your own heart. And I want you to ask this question. Have I allowed the little g God of self... My selfish ambitions, my selfish desires, my selfish wants, the things that I think will bring me fulfillment, the things that I think will bring me satisfaction. Have I allowed self to be elevated to a point where now I set the agenda? Now, I may masquerade it with religious terminology. I may project it as being something kind of different than it, but at the end of the day, it's self that has been elevated to a position of authority. Of setting the agenda of my life. And I want, you to, I want you to allow the spirit of God. To really reveal to you. What is setting the agenda for your heart. And for your life. Because if, 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 the, if self is reigning. You will never find fulfillment. You will never find ultimate satisfaction. And you will find that everything you chase after. Will only leave you with a sense of emptiness. Because it is God And God alone that brings ultimate satisfaction. So let's go to Daniel chapter number 3. As we we look at Daniel chapter number 3, we read about Nebuchadnezzar. And many of us are familiar with this story. Uh, Three characters by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar, this this king who thinks he's a god. This this king that thinks he's supreme. He he creates this huge statue. And he insists that everybody bows down to this statue that symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar's power. That symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's greatness and literally this Nebuchadnezzar was consumed with everyone acknowledging how great he is and we're familiar with the story Uh, and and Nebuchadnezzar really did have a knack for being impressive in fact uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's maybe some of you know who've studied history he was responsible for one of the seven ancient wonders of the world some of you are familiar with the hanging gardens of Babylon it was actually Nebuchadnezzar who was the one who sponsored these gardens of Babylon they were massive gardens he built for one of his wives who came from media All right, a land where mountains and vegetation uh, was so abundant that literally Nebuchadnezzar constructed an artificial mountain and planted gardens that literally hung down the side of this structure It, it literally people would say historians that from a distance it looked like these gardens were growing in the air in fact in a genius system had been devised to hoist water get this over 300 feet into the Euphrates from the Euphrates up to the top of these gardens and so Nebuchadnezzar was a he had a knack for just impressing people around him and and for Nebuchadnezzar his motivation was to impress others and whether it was building statues that glorified his fame that elevated his name whether it was the ancient gardens hanging gardens of Babylon, or are several other things. It was really his motivation was here to impress those around him and make sure that everybody else understood who he was, which leads us to our first thought, this first question this morning, and that is this. Question one. What is my and what is your significant motivation? You see, I don't know how to discover whether or not self is elevating its itself authority in my heart and so we're going to look at some questions that I hope will help us get us thinking a little bit so we can try to figure out whether or not this little g god of self is taking a place of authority and it's reigning in our hearts and lives so the first question we've got to ask ourselves is what is my significant motivation can I ask you this question what motivates you what is your ultimate motivation when everything's said and done, what is that thing that has the strongest driving force in your heart and in your life? We need to ask ourselves, what really motivates me? Nebuchadnezzar lived to impress others. Which is one sign that self reigns on the throne of your life. So I ask you, what motivates you? Do you live to impress others with who you are? What drives you what motivates you what's at the core of your ambition what is it that causes you to get up in the morning what is it that man really gets you moving in a particular direction can i say this the answer to that question will shed a lot of light into what kind of god reigns supreme in your heart Uh, a couple years ago I was talking to the one of one of the men in our church, and he uh, he had a particular job that he was working at. Just a good good young man, and, and uh, as he was working, he worked at a particular place that was giving him a lot of hours, and they wanted to see him kind of uh, promote through the ranks to some degree. And and uh, one day, his boss came to him and said, "Hey, I, I just I really need you. If you're going to continue moving through the ranks, I need you to start working here literally seven days a week." And right at this particular time, he was working you know five days, forty hours a week, whatever the case may be, kind of paying some bills, but he still felt like he could, you know, even, there was even some, you know, tension with his own personal finances that he felt like, man, maybe God could bless and they could get out of some of the, you know, just kind of the stress they were feeling financially. And and so he really was in a quandary and he didn't know quite what to do. Should he take this promotion? uh, That would mean that he would have to marginalize even some time with family, his church responsibilities, what he felt the Lord was calling him to do. And and we were talking through this and really just trying to fill out what the Lord would have for him. And, and I, I, as I often do in those type of settings, I ask a lot of questions. And, and I said, what do, you, what do you think the Lord and would have you do? And he, he literally quoted back to me Hebrews chapter number 10. He said, well, he says, I don't know that I'll have quite the amount of time for my family in the way I once would. And he said, I know Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And he really quoted the fact that uh, our, we should structure our lives in a way that we have time for God's house. And, and uh, you know, just even today there's there's some folks that are sick and those type of things. And that's perfectly understandable. And there, there'll be times where we have to go to work and uh, that's understandable. But we want to basically create a structure in our lives where we can create habits for corporate worship. For margin for our family and our marriage. And he understood that. And I, I, as we were talking, I said to this young man, I said, you know what? I want, I want you to remind you of a verse in the scripture where the Bible says, Promotion cometh neither from the east... Nor from the West, but promotion cometh from the Lord. And I said, You know what? If you will follow God's leading and you will structure your life wholly and completely around this book, I said, I guarantee you, based on the promises of God, He will not fail you. Because promotion doesn't come from your boss, promotion doesn't come from the powers that be promotion comes from the sovereign sovereign, provident grace of God and you submit to God's authority he'll take care of you this is why the scriptures tell us seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you but there's got to be a priority there's got to be something that becomes your true north it was amazing after literally, I, I want to say maybe two weeks after this conversation. It's been a couple of years now. Maybe it was a month or so. But relatively quickly, it was amazing. He called me up and said, hey, I got an opportunity to work. He said, I got a job. He said, the job I got is literally going to pay twice as much as my promotion would have given me. And once again, I reminded him, I said, you know what? Promotion cometh neither from the west, east nor from the west, but promotion comes from the Lord. It was a job that allowed him to have you know, evenings with his family and weekends for church. And it was just an amazing thing. And I believe God honored him with that because he put God first in his life. Rather than letting the bottom line be the ultimate driver of his life. Rather than success and achievement being the driving force of his life, rather than wanting to appease a boss, he wanted to please the Lord. And I think God honors. Us when we do so So how do we know what our motivations are If we've got to get to the heart of this What are my significant motivations Psalms chapter number 139 verse 23 says this Search me O God And know my heart Try me and know My thoughts He goes on to say and lead me in the way Everlasting Can I say this You can't know your motivations in and of yourself I can't know my motives I can't know my heart On my own. Uh, The the Bible is clear again and again. You know what? That we're incapable. We can't know the innermost being. And that's why we need God to reveal. That's why we need God's word. like, Like a mirror to show us what's going on in the deepest part of our hearts. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The verse goes on to say, and who can know it? It's, it's, it's a question. Who, who can even know? Here, here's the answer. God knows. And so we must allow God's word to be the mirror that reflects what's really going on in our hearts. Can I say this? You can't know what's going on in the deepest part of your heart. I can't know what's going on in the deepest part of my heart outside getting literally diving deep into God's word and allowing his spirit to reveal who I truly am. Because I and maybe some of you, as most of us as human beings, we are experts at self-deception. We are good at it. We are good at convincing ourselves and justifying ourselves and convincing ourselves that why we're, what we're doing is, is really best. We are experts at it. And that's why we need to bask and abide daily in the Word of God. Because God's Word, like a mirror, will reveal to us where our heart. Truly's at somebody once said this i believe it's in your notes make your ambition to please jesus make your ambition to please jesus and he'll take care of everything else could i encourage you with this nebuchadnezzar his motivation was to impress others look at what i built and look at what i did and everybody bow down to, to to show how great i really am And yet we're encouraged just to make much of Jesus. So how do we know if we're sitting on the throne of our own hearts? How do we know if the God of self is elevating there itself above everything else in our lives? To find the answer to that question, we must discover what is our significant motivations. If you are driven, if there is something that drives you more than the word of God and the will of God, then it might be a signal, it might be an indication that self is beginning to creep up its authority in your heart and in your life. King Nebuchadnezzar, as we said a moment ago, was an impressive individual. Um, Many of us would be impressed if we went to somebody's home that was maybe, I mean, 5,000 or 10,000 square feet, and we'd be pretty impressed by that. I mean, in in our current culture, if somebody has a home that's 10 or 12,000 square feet, we would be highly impressed with that. But just to give you some perspective, all right, King Nebuchadnezzar's palace or his home, uh, the Bible says literally 350 yards long. Now think about this for a moment. 350 yards long. uh, uh, Most experts guess that his palace would have been somewhere about 630,000 square feet. Now think about this. Literally somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15 to 18 football fields. That was his house. How many of you could probably get away with that you know you could probably make that work you know might provide just enough room for your for your kids rooms and you know maybe throw maybe a little extra room for a home theater system or something like that how many i could probably survive on six hundred and thirty thousand square foot dwelling place you know i think most of us could this guy was something impressive he was incredibly wealthy he was incredibly powerful he was incredibly authoritative And which we see here that, secondly, that his standard for success, all right, was personal gain. The the money that he possessed. Which leads us to our next question this morning. And that is this, question number two. What is my standard for success? For King Nebuchadnezzar, it was his gain. it It was what he could acquire. It was what he could possess. It was what he could stuff into his garage. It's what he could build. and and what he could acquire. These these were his standards for success. And he needed symbols for these things. He he built hanging gardens to show everybody just how successful he was. And he built a palace that was humongous just to show the world how important he really uh, was. And his standard for success was his personal gain, which leads us to our question, what is my standard and what is your standard for success? Nebuchadnezzar made personal gain his standard for success, which is another sign that self reigns on the throne of your life. So the question is how do you and I define success in our lives? If I were to ask everybody to pull out a piece of paper right now and answer that one question what is success to you? What would you put? If you find that you need the trappings of more possessions and bigger stuff and nicer clothes, and, and, and your ultimate definition of success is found in what you can acquire, what you can possess, what you can have, it might be an indication that self, selfishness, reigns on the throne of. Of your life. I think it's amazing. The apostle Paul in Philippians chapter number 3. Said it this way. But what things were. Gain to me. Those I counted loss for Christ. I want you to think about that statement for a second. Those things that were gain to me. The possessions. The things I could acquire. The things that I could have and possess. He says those things counted loss for Christ. Yea doubtless I count. Notice the next word. All things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered and the loss of all things. And do count them. Notice this. But dung. That I might win Christ. I mean, that's some pretty strong language that the Apostle Paul is throwing out there. He's basically saying everything that I've possessed. Everything that I acquired. He says it doesn't mean anything. He says, you know what means something? Jesus. That's what means something to me. My standard of success is not what I've acquired and what I can put in my garage and what I can accumulate and what I can buy. He says, my standard of success is Jesus. My standard of success is, oh, pleasing Him. I don't know if they'll have this on the screen or not, but life is not about getting more stuff. But rather, it's about getting with Jesus more. You see, getting more stuff doesn't bring fulfillment. I can't tell you the amount of sociological articles that you can read and the studies that have been done that verifies this as reality. You see, some of us who live in what would be considered more uh, middle class type of environments and cultures it's easy for us to look at the uber or super rich and look at their possessions and look at what they've acquired and look with a spirit of hope maybe that will give me this feeling maybe that will give me this satisfaction and it is hope that causes us to look toward those things to bring us some of that but can i just say this Sociological studies will declare for you that at the end of the day, those things do not bring ultimate satisfaction. They do not bring ultimate fulfillment. If anything, they are like a drug with diminishing returns. Just like a drug addict has to take a little bit more and a little bit more and do a little bit more each time to the point where they're not quite getting the same amount of high. Where at once it kind of fed something but the the high is no longer quite as high anymore and the lows just keep getting lower. The same thing happens with those who are addicted to materialism. They have to buy bigger stuff and more stuff, better vacations, bigger this, bigger those things, and they have to sacrifice more and more and more, and the highs are highs of diminishing returns, which means they have to sacrifice more and spend more. And sometimes it's not all monetary. Sometimes it's not all financial. Sometimes the sacrifices they make are sacrifices in time with their family. Sometimes the sacrifices are in their marriage. Sometimes they are financial. But don't misunderstand me the addiction that comes with materialism is no different than the drug addict's addiction. Is there highs? Oh, there's highs. But there are highs of diminishing returns until the high is no longer satisfied and you're in bondage, in bondage to the sacrifice. Life is not about getting more stuff it's about getting with Jesus more. Can I say this at the end of the day what makes Jesus so amazing? Is that he can satisfy every time. That being in his presence, spending time under the wing of the almighty, abiding in him. Notice verse number 28 of chapter number 4. Notice this. Verse number 28. And this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the twelfth months. He walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said. Notice what king Babylon says. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? Now, now we're leading up. We're, we went backwards, all right? How did he get to this place where he declared that God was great? And we're, we're telling the story about how he got there, all right? He saw that his motivation was what he could acquire. His standard for success was what he could gain, how he could impress others. But question number three, which leads us to this. You see, Nebuchadnezzar... ...looks at all of his success and concludes that it was accomplished by the might of his own power. Nebuchadnezzar declares, I'm the one who made it happen. And that's what we see here in verse number 30. The king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom... ...by the might of my power. The might of my power. So here's the question, where do you go for, for help... When you need strength, where do you find it? For Nebuchadnezzar, it was self-empowerment. He had an idea that he was kind of a self-made man. That he's the one who did it. He forgot that it was God Jehovah that declared it's the king. The, the power of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turneth it whithersoever he will. He had forgotten that it was God's sovereignty. And that it was God's providence that sets up kings and puts down kings. He started to get arrogant. He started to get filled with pride. And he began to convince himself that it was his power and his might. And his strength that got him to where he was. Without realizing it was God. Who allowed him to be born into some type of kingdom, you know, lifestyle. It was God that gave him his mental abilities. It was God that empowered him. Which leads us to our final question this morning and that is this. What is the source of our power? Nebuchadnezzar made himself the source of ultimate strength. He declared that it was, it's me. I'm the one who did this thing. I'm the one who makes it happen. It rises and falls on me, which is a sure sign that self reigns on the throne of your life. One of the sure ways to know whether or not the little g God of self is elevating itself into the throne room on the throne of your heart is by asking yourself this question here Where do I go to for strength? See, some of us, we have this attitude, when I need strength, I'm just going to kind of self-discipline my way into this thing. I can make it happen. I'll just gruel, I'll just discipline, I'll just work, I'll just grind. I will make it happen. That's, one of, that's, a, that's a clear indication that the God of self has begun to elevate itself in your heart. When something in the back of your mind tells you, okay, this is not going the way it's supposed to, I'll just grunt it through. It's one of the sure indications that the God of self is starting to reign supreme. The problem with that is the God of self will force you to make sacrifices that are too big to bear. I've seen men who have literally destroyed their health, their relationships with family, marriages crumble because they allowed the God of self to put them on such an ego trip that they thought they could do it. And they pushed and they grind and they, uh, with no thought, that it's God, his providence, his sovereignty that sets up and puts down. And your view on this has huge implications into the functional practical arenas of your life. Where do you go to for strength? You see, relying on your own flesh, your own abilities, your own, you know, talents, while God gives you those things and their blessings to be given gratitude for God for, he's given us all, he's given us all strength. It's not to pretend like we don't have them. It's not like God's saying ignore the gifts that he's given you. That's not the point. The point is we must understand that each of those gifts, each of those strengths are gifts from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. And we must come to a place where we recognize it is his strength that does it. When we start depending upon the flesh and our own willpower and our own abilities and our own strength, it's basically a lose-lose proposition. And let me explain this to you in, in one minute. You're either going to find yourself falling to one of two extremes. When you're, when you're doing really well in the flesh and you're grinding it and you're making it happen and there's no time for prayer and there's no time for abiding in Christ, there's no time in acquiring strength from the Lord, not in any real way. You might give him verbal kind of credit, but in, your, in the deepest essence part of your life, it's, it, there's, there is nothing coming from God. All it is is just a little kind of, you just, you'll kind of give him a little credence or a little credit with your tongue, but it's no deeper than that. When you're just grinding your way through and you're looking to your flesh and you're looking to your own strength and looking to your own willpower and looking to your own discipline to make something happen, it's a lose-lose proposition. On the one hand, you'll either become critical of others who can't do it as good as you can. People who can't live the spiritual life quite the way you can. People who can't climb the corporate ladder quite the way you can. It allows you to you become very arrogant. Your life becomes laced with Pride. Much like Nebuchadnezzar. I did this with the might of my hand. And anybody who can't, phew, nobody's. There's an arrogance that taints the soul of the Christian who is driven in the flesh. Pride. Arrogance. There's such a critical spirit. This will happen among religious Christian folks. Well, I was able to do the religious duty and I did it. Why can't you? There's a, just a criticalness that begins to permeate the soul of the Christian that's trying to do this stuff in the flesh. They don't recognize that it's God's grace working in them and God's grace working through them. And there's such a, there's such a criticalness to it. They, everybody else, they look through a lens of being, they're just so critical toward everybody else. Because after all, they did it. Why can't you? I did it. Why can't they? And there's a critical spirit. There's arrogance. There's pride. And oftentimes there's even an entitlement mentality. God, look what I did for you. Why can't you do it for me? God, look what I did. You owe me. And there's this entitlement mentality that begins to permeate in the heart of the Christian that is driven in the flesh, that sees the might of his own hand, that sees his own determination and strength making things happen. And we become entitled. We look to this organization. We look to that person. We look to God to give us what is owed us. And we go to work and we, we go to work with Spirits full of just Expectation about what you're owed And when we've created An entire society Of people that feel entitled to everything And we've got a a generation Of young people running around the planet Here today with this entitlement Mentality like everybody owes them Something you know why (laughs) Because deep down they think They did it I made it Happen Pull myself up by my bootstrap. Can I just say this? At any moment, (laughs) God could just cause your heart to stop beating. Your brain to stop functioning the way it functions. He could take any uh, one small little car wreck and he could totally change your life forever. You're not as much control as you think you are. It's an illusion. But when we get to this place of what, how do I define success? What is my source of power? I'm the source of power. On the one hand, we become critical. We become arrogant. We become full of pride. We become entitled. And that's, all, that's all. if we're doing good. If we're doing bad, and we're, we're man, we can't find the job, and we can't get the promotion, and we don't seem to be doing well spiritually, and we seem to be... On that side, we get filled with shame and guilt, and our hearts are filled with depression... Can I say this? Both of those things are indications that self is trying to run your life. If you find yourself living in a state of depression all the time and your shame and your guilt just buries you down, it's just the opposite extreme of revealing that you're trying to do it on your own. The God of self Has deceived you into thinking that you can. And guess what? Your soul cannot bear the pressure, the weight of that responsibility. You're smothering your own heart. Rather than just simply going to God and surrendering and saying, God, I can't. I'm incapable. I'm insufficient. But God in you, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ. And so God, I surrender. I allow you to do through me what I can't do on my own. And every minute of every day, constantly reorienting yourself to the realities that God does through us. What we can't do on our own. And even when it looks like we succeed. We find that really it's just failure masquerading as something other than that. I think it was one person who said it this way. When we work in the flesh, we will either either fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. And we've got some people maybe who are allowing the God of self to reign in their life. And you guys have failed. Maybe there might be some who have failed miserably. And you feel it. And you feel the guilt and the shame. And you you feel the the depression and the, the weight and pressure of that. There might be others who have succeeded even more miserably. And on the outside, it looks like you've arrived. But in your heart, there's just, there's a critical spirit. There's an entitlement mentality. There's an arrogance and a pride that has deceived you into thinking you have made it happen. And both of those extremes are indications of a life that is being ruled by self. And can I say this? It's a dead end road. That, I'm not coming here to bring shame. I'm not coming here to try to you know, cast judgment. I simply come to you to say you're on a dead end path that will not fulfill. You're on a dead end path that will not satisfy it's not going to bring you the hope. It's not going to bring you the peace. It's not going to bring you the joy that you're thinking it might bring you. It's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave your heart void. And as a pastor, I just want to take the word of God and just simply show you the Bible shows you where that path leads to. And you've been convincing yourself year after year after year that just one more promotion, just one more purchase, just one more relationship, just one more high, just And I'm just here to say. It's a dead end road. They're highs of diminishing return. They will not satisfy. They will not leave you ultimately fulfilled. And one day you're going to find. That the sacrifices you're having to make. You're you're in bondage to those sacrifices. But they no longer bring the high. That they once did. And whether we're talking about drugs or materialism. Is irrelevant. When self. Self. Is on the throne. You're heading down a dead end road. It's not about getting more of this or that. It's about getting more to Jesus. That's why Matthew 26 tells us the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I love the way C.S. Lewis said this. And when he was speaking into this, he said, relying on God. Has to begin all over again. Every day. Notice this. Every day. As if nothing has yet been done. This is not something you do once a year. This is something every morning. This is, why, this is why the Apostle Paul spoke to this. Man, I die daily. He said this is a daily thing. Every day I've got to cast my dependence afresh and anew on him that day. This is not something we do once a week at church. It's not something we do once a year at revival. This is something we've got to do every day we wake up to spend time abiding in Christ affirming our new realities affirming our new identity of who Christ says we are and living out through that new identity allowing that abiding with Christ and depending upon his strength to do through us what we can't do that needs to be a daily ritual a daily exercise a daily affirmation to depend upon him you see how Nebuchadnezzar answers those answered those three questions that we just asked are the same we give when we're worshiping the God of self when we answer them like Nebuchadnezzar answered them when we find our success and in, in, you know what and and what we've gained when when we find here our identity and what you know we've accomplished it proves that we're worshiping God of self now, notice verse number twenty seven we're going to wrap this up in conclusion verse twenty seven. He says, wherefore, O king, but my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Daniel tries to warn the king. He tries to warn him. He says, listen, you're, you're proud, you're arrogant, and God's going to come. He's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's not going to allow you to continue down this path. And I, I would say to you, God loves you too much. He is too jealous to continue to allow you to make a God out of yourself, and so he gives you his word to warn you to say there's something better. It's not, because, it's not because he hates you. It's because he recognizes it's a dead end. It's not going to bring fulfillment. It's not going to bring satisfaction. Don't live your entire life being self-deceived thinking that one more purchase or one more promotion or one more this is going to bring ultimate satisfaction, bring peace, and bring joy. It's a dead end. It can't accomplish. It's an empty promise that cannot fulfill. And so God says, I love you too much to allow you to continue down. That path. Notice verse number 28. Daniel says, hey, he's got, he's got had 12 months. And, and this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. So 12 months goes by. He has this dream. Daniel warns him. Hey, get right. Man, you need to dethrone the king of self off the throne of your heart. You can't keep looking at yourself as the God who can control and who can do. And his might. He says, I want you to do it 12 months. But see, the problem of making yourself a god is that you don't tend to take advice very well. One of the indications of people who are allowing self to be a god is they do not like counsel. They don't like what other godly Christians would have to say. They ignore it and that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And then in verse number 3, this is where it happens. This gets crazy, and this is kind of an extreme story. The same hour, the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men. He did eat grass as oxen. Get this, here's a man, and he's literally eating like the beast of the field. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Can you get a mental picture of what Nebuchadnezzar looks like? Literally, he now is living like an animal. His mind is... Going crazy, he looks like a beast. Verse 34 And at the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me. Can I say this? God has two plans for people who allow self to reign in their life. Here's only two plans humility or humiliation. When you allow self, selfish ambition, selfish drive, selfish dreams that usurp God's authority, that usurp God's word, you're either going to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord so he can lift you up, humility, or like Nebuchadnezzar, humiliation. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar finds himself wandering the fields like a beast. I would hate for people here who would not be willing to allow their view of God to bring them into a spirit of humility. But God has the power to humiliate and not because he doesn't love you. He can take away the money. He can take away the job. He can take away the possessions. Not because he doesn't love you. Not because he doesn't want what's best for you, but because he loves you too much to allow you to continue down a path that will not fulfill, that will not satisfy. Nebuchadnezzar finally takes himself off the throne of his heart. Notice verse number 37. He finally does it. And he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and honor the king of heaven, whose works are truth and his ways are judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. He's able to humiliate. God says, don't let pride, don't let self reign on your life. There's a better leader. There's a better ruler. His name is Jesus. Jesus makes a better king. He's wiser. He's more loving. He's more caring. When God replaces you on the throne of your heart, you answer these questions differently. What motivates you? Instead of trying to impress others, and rather than trying to live for others, it becomes about pleasing God. Whether you eat a drink or whatsoever you do, you're now doing to the glory of God. Your standard for success, instead of personal gain and what you can acquire and what you can have, the answer becomes faithfulness to God. I want to commune with God in such a way that allows me to be faithful. And if He blesses me in the process, if He gives to me in the process, I'll just give more gratitude to God but I'm not living for gain I'm living for God and what is your source of power instead of self-empowerment your answer becomes dependence upon God You, you say what's the point of this message what's the big idea Galatians 5.24 says, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. There has to come a point where you are willing to die to yourself. You're willing to die to your ambitions. You're willing to die to your dreams so you can live a better life in Jesus. Here's the theme. Die to self. Live for Jesus. Die to self. Live for Jesus. I mean, I want you to imagine it as we conclude here today. Imagine living a life where the almighty, a God who is all powerful, a God who is all knowing, he knows the beginning from the end, and a God who loves you more than you could ever honestly love yourself. Think about this, an almighty, an all knowing, all loving God is now in full control of your life. You are not all knowing. You are not all powerful. God is. Think about the life you could live with God at the helm. Where you surrender to His leading. Where you surrender to His control. Where you surrender to His providence. God is not trying to rip you off. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And He is all-loving. He wants what's best for you. He wants to lead you down a path that will be for your good and for His glory. But as long as self is on the throne... As long as self is taking the steering wheel, I find that self always gets self in trouble. It laces its life with pride and arrogance, critical spirits, entitlement mentality, shame, guilt, and depression. And Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more. Abundantly. Can I ask you. Can I encourage you like the Apostle Paul. To crucify your flesh. To surrender it. Like the, like the Bible says in Galatians 5. And many other places. To surrender. To die to that. And live unto Christ. So here's my question. While living for the Savior. Is way more fulfilling than living for self. It just is. You might get a temporary high. Off of the purchase Off of the excitement. But if you are you are living for those things, you're being driven by those things, and you are you are you are taking the word of God and the will of God and you are subjecting your authority over it. There is no fulfillment, there is no satisfaction. Living for the Savior is way more fulfilling than living for self because He is all powerful, He is all knowing, and He is all loving. He wants what is best for you. So here's my question. Who reigns on the throne of your heart? Who reigns on the throne of your heart? Like Nebuchadnezzar, is it you? Or is it Jesus? His will, his word, everything else is subject to him. Is he the king of kings and the Lord of lords in your life? That's the question. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father.